Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Every regiment in the Civil War has its own story, but few of them are as far-ranging as that of the 8th Minnesota. For two years, they battled the elements on the Minnesota frontier. Then they fought Sitting Bull in the Badlands of the West. They fought Nathan Bedford Forest in Tennessee. They marched with Sherman in North Carolina, traveling from Yellowstone to the Atlantic coast. We'll learn more about this regiment tonight from Paul Hoddenfield, author of Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P- O W I C Z G at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not, however, representing the university, nor will my guest speak for anyone other than themselves. It is uh, dark outside. It's autumn, October 2023, the first show of October. Uh, football season, but we're not talking ECU football this week. Uh, it's a rebuilding year. We're just going to let the rest of the season go. Um, not talking Michigan football either. They haven't played anyone good yet, so we don't know just how good they are. We'll have to wait and find out. Uh, but I will say a word for ECU uh, soccer, women's soccer. Uh, on Thursday last week, beat South Florida two to nothing. That is the first time ever that ECU has won a soccer game at South Florida, and the first time in 23 years, I think, that they beat South Florida anywhere. South Florida are the the traditional dominant power in women's soccer in the 
what league are we in now? The the uh, the American Athletic Conference. I'm sure all of you knew that already. But they uh, uh, they win every year, and this year ECU looked really good. Uh, good coaching had them play a very aggressive high press the whole game, and and South Florida couldn't solve it. Two to nothing could have been four to nothing. It was a it was a fine game to watch. And if that was exciting, there's more exciting news here on campus. Uh, the state legislature here in North Carolina has passed a budget, and the governor has allowed it to become law, which uh, includes, for the first time since well, I've been here 20 years, it's not quite that long, it includes raises for faculty. Um, first meaningful raise, I think, since 2008. Uh, there was some concern that the legislature would pull the trick they did back in 2018 when they generously announced raises for all state employees in North Carolina with the specific exception of faculty in the UNC system. Uh, for us, there would be a lump sum of money given to the uh, to each college, which was then instructed to give it to the staff, who were not even getting minimum wage in some cases. And once they got their minimum wage, then the rest could go to the faculty. And when it was done, they said, there's enough to give everybody a 0.03% raise, so we'll just skip it which was wise, give it to the staff, they need it more. Uh, this year, though, uh, they included the faculty in the statewide raise, so actually uh, uh, going to get something at some point. The, uh, But I'm already flushed because this is my 20th year of service, and this week I got the letter thanking me for 20 years of service and recognizing that with a gift card uh, to the student bookstore and paraphernalia store, uh, for $40, not enough to buy a hoodie, but probably enough to buy a, a decent T-shirt. So 20 years, T-shirt. Um, it's, it, I already have an ECU, several ECU T-shirts, uh, but that brings us to T-shirts. What you can do is, uh, without waiting 20 years, avail yourself right now of the chance to get a Civil War talk radio t-shirt they are available if you go to the website www.impedimentsofwar.org and the new 20th season t-shirts are in i am wearing uh mine right now i'm wearing one of mine i bought two uh they are big and bold in their design they feature abraham lincoln and his son tad uh the, the original shirts had General Sherman. You can still buy a Sherman shirt, but the, the new Lincoln shirts are here. And uh, I strongly urge everyone to go to the website, see who's going to be on the show next week and the week after. Press the PayPal button to donate. Say to yourself, I'm not cheap like the UNC uh, legislature or the people who give a t-shirt for 20 years of service. I'm going to contribute to the show tonight and while you're there you can see as i said who's going to be on next week no live show uh october 11th 2023 it's time for stephen ambrose historical tours this hallowed ground the tour uh second one of the year that i've i'll have the opportunity to do i'm excited about it uh really looking forward to it i have to say i i, I always enjoy these um that that's not a surprise who would not enjoy going to see all these very interesting uh battlefield sites uh if you're not coming aboard this one uh look 
look ahead to the spring. There will be more tours. Get yourself signed up for one, and, and uh, we'll see some battlefields together. After next week, though, we'll be back. Gene Harmon of Inheriting Heritage, LLC, will be with us. We'll have to find out what that's all about. On October 25th, Judith Sumner and her botanical history, Plants in the Civil War. Then we get it to November. Darren Whipperman has written Burnside's Boys, the Union's Ninth Corps, and the Civil War in the East. We'll talk with Professor Robert Emmett Curran, or Curran, I'll say Curran for now, uh, November 8th. Uh, his recent book is called American Catholics and the Quest for Equality in the Civil War Era. And we will just about wrap up the month uh, on the 15th with Andrew Dalton, the director of the Beyond the Battle Museum in Gettysburg. A uh, new museum, brand new, just opened this year. And we'll talk with him about what there is to see. That'll bring us to Thanksgiving and then a couple more shows at the end of the month and on into December, but you can look them up there. Tonight, we are talking about the 8th Minnesota with our guest, Paul Hodnafield. He is the author of Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. Uh, Mr. Hodnafield, are you there? I am here. Thank you so much for having me on this evening. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, we have not officially met. Can I call you Paul? Can we go by first yes. names? Uh, call me Jerry, please. Uh, the, uh, the first question, uh, the 8th Minnesota, interesting regiment, but I'm guessing that one cannot make a living just writing about the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry. Um, is, is this? Uh, do you have a day job to go along with this? I, I do have a day job. I, I am an attorney. Ah, that um, I, as speaking as a recovering attorney, uh, a former former lawyer, I, I uh, understand the desire to write up and read about the Civil War as much as possible. Um, uh, I, I ended up having to leave the, the field so I could do it full-time, uh, but I totally get wanting to do it, uh, uh, do both. What kind of law do you do? Uh, uh, commercial uh, law related to uh, due diligence and uh, uh, corporate compliance. Yeah, an, an important thing uh, someone has to do, certainly. So what, what brought you to writing about this uh, particular regiment? Well, originally, I, I came across a reminiscence as I was doing a, some genealogical work. And this reminiscence was written by one of the soldiers from uh, Company E of the 8th Minnesota for his daughters about 25 years after the end of the Civil War. And this reminiscence was uh, very entertaining. It, uh, it was humorous. It was also tragic at times. But it really grabbed my attention, and I thought, this is something that I want to learn a little bit more about. And as I delved into it, I found more and more primary materials, uh, uh, diaries, uh, uh, other reminiscences, uh, newspaper articles and things, and began putting together a, uh, the story. And I realized uh, this story hadn't been told before. Bits and pieces of, uh, of these materials had found their way into other works, mostly about the, uh, uh, the Dakota War, Sioux Uprising. But um, 
the whole story of the regiment hadn't been told, and it was quite a fascinating story. Uh, the travels that they did, the people that they encountered, uh, the conditions under which they uh, served, and uh, the fun they had while they were in the service. Uh, it, I found the whole story fascinating, and I thought it was uh, about time somebody put the whole thing together and, and made it available. So that's what I did. Well, it, it, and a good thing, too. It, it is certainly an interesting story that no other regiment uh, has an experience quite like uh, these particular soldiers. In some ways, though, they're, they're fairly typical uh, Let's, I guess, start at the beginning with them. They're they're raised in uh, the summer of 1862. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, They held a war meeting in uh, Wright County, Minnesota, in the town of Monticello, which was designed to raise uh, a company of soldiers from Wright County. Uh, They uh, uh, that. That meeting went a couple of days, patriotic speeches and other things to try and get the young men of the county to enlist. They finally got enough people together to put together a a company, and they set off for Fort Snelling, uh, which is where Minnesota was outfitting its uh, regiments. And uh, they arrived at Fort Snelling on August 17th, uh, which also happened to be the the day in which the the Sioux uprising began in western Minnesota. And that changed the direction of their service from uh, a focus on the south to actually protecting the uh, the Minnesota frontier, and it led to them staying in Minnesota for the first two years of their service. You point out in the book that unlike many regiments, they don't actually even serve as a regiment initially, that their their companies are divided up. That I mean, typically, the, the, the company is just the subunit of the regiment, but these guys are all over the place. That's correct. The, when the, at the time of the uprising, um, it, the, it, it caused mass panic uh, across Minnesota, and many settlers fled the state. Uh, they abandoned their farms. They abandoned their property. They, they just uh, got out of there as fast as they could. Uh, they were terrified of uh, the situation. And Minnesota at the time was already a, a big agricultural producer, and the government needed the farm production from Minnesota in order to uh, support the war effort. They needed to feed the troops. And as a result, the government was very concerned about the, uh, the, the farmers fleeing. So they... Uh, what they wanted to do was provide some sort of security, and they did that by taking the the companies and placing them at a string of forts that ran from near modern-day Fargo, North Dakota, down through central Minnesota. Many of these were sod forts. Uh, in some cases, uh, they were hastily erected uh, as the uh, uprising began. Uh, there were a couple of existing stockades that they, uh, that they manned, but uh, they... Uh, the idea was to provide some sort of security for those that remain behind and encourage other farmers to, to return and uh, and begin production again in their fields. Yeah, most of us who read about the Civil Wars have certainly heard about the Sioux Uprising or Dakota War, uh, as it is alternately called, and but it's usually in connection with, with John Pope, the... the uh, uh, defeated general at Second Manassas, he gets sent up to uh, to the west to Minnesota, and so is so the Eighth Minnesota. Then do they report to Pope? Uh, like there must be intermediate units, brigades, and divisions uh, be- between. Yeah, he, 
Yeah, the 8th Minnesota was under uh, General John Pope, uh, but they reported through Henry Sibley. So the uh, Colonel, uh, Minor, Colonel Minor Thomas of the 8th Minnesota, he reported to Hen- General Henry Sibley, who was in command of the District of Minnesota. And Sibley, in turn, reported to Pope, who initially had his headquarters in St. Paul, but eventually moved it uh, over into Wisconsin. So was the 8th Minnesota heavily involved in fighting in the the Sioux Rebellion? Actually, they they were not. The the Sioux were uh, defeated within about a month after the beginning of the rebellion. Um, The uh, uh, the 8th Minnesota wasn't involved in in that part of the fighting. Um, Mm -hmm. The following year, in 1863, they were involved in uh, some minor skirmishes with uh, small bands of uh, Sioux that infiltrated back into Minnesota and uh, got as far as uh, central Minnesota. They they uh, did kill some settlers and raided, raided farms, stole horses, and the 8th Minnesota, units of the 8th Minnesota were involved in chasing them down. In fact, uh, the, the 8th Minnesota took several casualties that summer. Uh, I think they had uh, uh, the Indians killed two up at uh, Fortress at uh, Pomme de Terre, which is in uh, north-central Minnesota, and uh, there, were, there were other casualties in uh, farther south in central Minnesota uh, where um, units of uh, uh, different companies, the 8th Minnesota, had been out uh, on patrol and were ambushed by Indians. In fact, in, in the summer of 1863, uh, General Sibley led a punitive expedition into Dakota Territory against the, the Sioux and fought a couple of battles uh, at Whitestone Hill and uh, uh, a couple other minor skirmishes. And the 8th Minnesota, along the you know, station in Minnesota, uh, suffered more casualties uh, in Minnesota than... Uh, than Sibley's expedition did out in Dakota Territory, where the, the bulk of the, uh, the the Sioux were at the time. We're taking uh, we're we're talking tonight with Paul Podnafield. He's the author of Sherman's Wood Ticks: The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the Eighth Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Hey, 
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Paul Hodnanfield, author of Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. We've been talking about the regiment raised in the summer of 1862, uh, just at the start of the the Sioux War on the Minnesota frontier. Uh, Paul, I gather from your reading that you... uh, that that there was that that rebellion that war was not without some justification that that it, the 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 tone you used makes me think that the Sioux had some legitimate grievances. Oh, I, absolutely. They uh, the the government had not treated them particularly well. Uh, the uh, uh, they had been forced onto reservations in beginning in 1851 with the Treaty of Traverse to Sioux. And uh, the reservation in later negotiations was uh, 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 reduced even further from the original. They, the government cut them off from their hunting grounds uh, and uh, failed to fulfill the promises of payment. Uh, the uh, they were, I think they paid seven and a half cents an acre for the land in Minnesota under the treaty. Uh, part of it was a, um, a bulk payment, but they were supposed supposed to pay annual annuities. Those annuities were annually late, and without their hunting grounds to uh, to feed their families, the the Indians were dependent on the traders uh, for for their food. And, and with the delayed payments, they were living on credit. And the traders had managed, as part of the treaty process, to slip in a uh, uh, a provision that said that the treaty payments would be made only after the traders had taken their share. Mm-hmm. And the traders were not always honest. Uh, they, uh, they inflated prices. The Indian, they cut off the, uh, the Indians when they most needed the credit to, to pay uh, for their food and, and support. And it, it bred a lot of resentment. And it was building for for years before it actually blew up. And that summer of 1862 was especially bad. The previous year had been bad crops. It was very difficult for the Indians to feed themselves. The uh, uh, the traders were uh, not cooperative and, and uh, actually appeared to despise the, the Indians, and they understood it. And eventually it reached the boiling point, and, uh, uh, and the uprising uh, took place. And the uprising was triggered over a, a, a you know, re- relatively small incident in central Minnesota, uh, but uh, where where several Indians got into an argument with a uh, a trader, and uh, eventually ambushed and killed him and and his family. The uh, when they went back to the reservation, uh, they they were able to, uh, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, Get the, get the the folks riled up there, and they uh, they decided to uh, wage war against the whites. And so, within the next day or so, uh, they they launched attacks all up and all up and down the Minnesota River, killed hundreds of settlers in the process, and sparked panic across the frontier. 
Uh, some of their leaders that you point out, uh, I think Little Crow in particular, recognized that this was a, a futile cause, that, that the U.S. Army was going to be too big for them, ultimately. Uh, and, of course, that's what happens. Yeah, Little Crow and uh, other leaders, Big Eagle, they, they had actually been out to Washington. They had seen the strength of the U.S. government, and they mm-hmm. knew that um, that it, it was probably going to be a futile effort. On the other hand, with the war raging in the South and, uh, and a number of other uh, factors, uh, considering that they were... Uh, uh, you know, the men were, were leaving to go fight the war. Uh, they, they also realized that if there was ever a time when they could uh, maybe succeed, that mm-hmm. was it. And that was so their moment. It yeah. all came together at one time and, and resulted in, in the uprising. Although, there were a large number of the Indians that did not want to be involved in the uprising. They didn't think it was a good thing. They didn't participate. And they, uh, in fact, helped the white settlers to escape in many cases. So you pointed out that the uh, the Eighth Minnesota, you know, they're scattered along the frontier. They do uh, provide security at this time, and then there there's uh, uh, I think you said it was the Sibley mission goes out, uh, expedition goes out. That's not involving the Eighth Minnesota directly, mm-hmm. but all this time they are learning how to be soldiers. That is that. that uh, you have some chapters where you talk about their training, uh, which anyone who's read Civil War memoirs of, of enlisted soldiers or uh, books about regiments is familiar with that process of drill and uh, so on. But it it, uh, it there there are always wrinkles in in every regiment's experience. It, there was one officer in particular you describe, uh, a captain who made me think of uh, Band of Brothers, World War II <laughs> series, uh, uh, Captain Sobel, uh, played by yeah. the guy from Friends. Uh, listeners, you, you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and, who, and, of course, that, that's based on a true story. There is a real – there was such an officer. Uh, now, what was it Hartley? Hartnett? What was the officer? Yeah, that Ed, that Edward together? Hartley. And and okay. the the parallel to Band of Brothers was not lost on me. I it it, it, it definitely was a, a surprise. But uh, Edward Hartley uh, was elected captain by the men uh, right away, uh, and the uh, first lieutenant. Uh, of course, the 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 company has a captain commanding it, with the first lieutenant and second lieutenant as uh, uh, subordinate officers. Uh, the first lieutenant was a merchant by the name of Micah, Micah Croswell, and then Harvey Brookins was uh, the second lieutenant. Hartley was a lawyer in uh, in the area where the uh, where the company was raised, and as was oftentimes customary, uh, the the person that uh, helped raise the the company was elected the captain, and and he had been involved in that. Um, so he, Micah Croswell, and Harvey Brookins were elected as the officers, but it came out very, very quickly that uh, Hartley, despite his uh, skill as a lawyer, was not uh, meant to be a leader of a uh, uh, an infantry company. He he could not get the commands right. Uh, he. Um, uh, he mistreated the men in some ways, or at least they perceived uh, 
perceived it so. And uh, he actually embarrassed them in many ways. They, they felt that they were uh, falling behind in training of the other companies. So what they did after about uh, six months is they essentially fired him. They, they voted him out as captain, although uh, their vote was largely symbolic. He took the hint and he, uh, he resigned. And his first lieutenant with, went with him. Harvey Brookins was the former Wright County Sheriff, and he he uh, he moved into uh, he was elected as the captain. Uh, 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 the first lieutenant was uh, elected as Thomas Tollington, and Charles Post is the second lieutenant. Now this this crew of officers turned out to be very good, and the men would were, were quite loyal to them, and. Uh, um, the the company came around and pretty soon they were they were feeling pretty proud as soldiers. They thought they were as good as any company in the regiment after that. I thought it was interesting that uh, you know Minnesota uh, and, and the states of the old uh, Northwest Territory have a sort of uh, egalitarian streak. Uh, political progressivism in the sense of 19th century progressive movement, progressivism, uh, so that the soldiers said when they held that election, they, they said, well, you guys can be officers, but the extra pay you get divided up with everybody. Officers don't get paid more than anybody else. We're all equal here. Exactly. Uh, they took... They that, took that, yeah, I've never heard of any other regiment doing that. That was fascinating. I hadn't heard of that either. And and what they did is, in order to stand for election, as the in in the initial election anyway, in order right. to stand for for the election of an officer, mm-hmm. uh, the officer or the the candidate had to agree that anything they were paid over the uh, private's pay would be given to the first sergeant and then divided up equally. Mm-hmm. So the the only advantage they had of being officers, aside from probably having access to, to better food and and quarters, was that they would get a a higher uniform allowance. Well, that that didn't survive the uh, the the change in officers in when they mm-hmm. voted out Hartley and uh, Croswell left too in 1863. Um, then they um, they they got rid of that idea. But uh, for for a few months there, they were they were. Uh, uh, following that egalitarian idea and, and making sure everybody got paid exactly the same, regardless of their rank. I mean, one of the motifs that runs through this book is, is that these soldiers absolutely see themselves as free American citizens. And yes, they've agreed to be in the army temporarily to save the republic, but it doesn't mean that they have lost any of their rights and they. Uh, they, they 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 carry on accordingly. Uh, it, it sometimes it's quite entertaining. Well, I mean they do funny things too. The uh, uh, the scene you describe where uh, uh, the soldiers are getting shaved uh, <laughs> was I thought the best practical joke I've read about in the Civil War for a while. If you want to tell that story. Yeah, there were there were there were a lot of incidents like that that took place. Uh, what what had happened is uh, the the com- company E was stationed in, in Painesville, Minnesota, which isn't too far from their their hometown, uh, mm-hmm. and they they sent away and had all their friends and family come up, and the the people of Painesville put them up as guests, and they had a big party. Uh, 
And in preparation for this, they uh, 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 it was kicked off, I, I think, with church on a Sunday morning, and all the soldiers wanted to be clean-shaven and looking good for, for their families and friends uh, as they went to church. Well, the, uh, the, the musician, uh, William Lane, he, they called him the Little Drummer Boy. He was about 5'8 and 250 pounds or something like that. He was, he was very big. But he also doubled as the barber. And so what he did is he told everybody, listen, there's so many people i got to shave here. You just all get lined up, lather up the right side of your face. I'll come down, and then when I get to the end, uh, I'll turn around and do the left side going back. So he does this, and he gets to the end, and he gets called out the door for a moment, and he steps out and never returned. <laughs> <laughs> so they've all got half beards <laughs> going So going they're all half shaven, <laughs> and uh, they, they actually thought it was rather funny and, and went uh, <laughs> uh, half shaven to, to, this, uh, uh, to, to the event. They had a good time with it. They, they actually uh, seemed to take these practical jokes in, in good spirits, and there were a lot of jokes that went on. They would uh, uh, throw... Uh, uh, cartridges down the the uh, the chimney into the wood stove, mm-hmm. and they'd go off in the, uh, the belching smoke and making bangs. Uh, uh, at, at one dance, somebody greased the violin strings, uh, much to the chagrin of all the people that were attending. It was uh, uh, there, there were a lot of things that went on, and. Uh, that's how you amuse yourself when there's no television, cell phones, radio, and probably not even a lot of books around to, to read. Uh, of course, it could turn tragic, too. The uh, the, the bear hunt story was one that uh, I thought, boy, that that's just kids doing kid things. And, and uh, the, yeah. the, the guy was pretending to be a bear. Yeah, you have, you have a, a, a lot of young men uh, mm-hmm. who... Uh, are are armed, and uh, they're always hungry. And one thing that they love, uh, they really enjoyed bear meat. It was probably better than most of the uh, livestock that the Army provided them. Um, I don't know if you've ever had bear meat, but it's a very rich and and tasty wild game. And uh, they they cherished that. And uh, one squad of Company E, uh, they they were stationed in uh, a town called Silver Creek, which is south of, uh, it's near the Mississippi River, north of the Twin Cities. And uh, one of the guys, as a joke, one evening went out into the uh, woods next to the house in which the squad was uh, quartered and started making some noises like a bear. And the the squad was all excited because there, there's a bear out there. So they grabbed their guns and they went out. The problem is it's dusk and they're all dressed in uh, heavy blue greatcoats. Well, uh, one of the soldiers saw the stark shape making bear noises in the woods and fired. And sadly, uh, Christopher Bailey, who was a, a young man from uh, Monticello, uh, was hit and, and died within uh, a couple of minutes. Hmm. Now, really, uh, just a tragic story. Uh, besides that kind of you know, random, unfortunate casualty. The regiment does eventually see action. Uh, 1864, the expedition with General Sully uh, is the one that takes them out west. I said at the opening, they they go uh, as far as Yellowstone River. And so I want to talk about that. Um, we have just a minute or two till break. Uh, give us the quick background on that expedition. 
Yeah, the idea here was that uh, to, to, again, provide security for uh, Minnesota farmers, they wanted to establish a bit of a buffer zone on the western side of Minnesota between the, the state and the, and the Indians. So the idea was they would go out there and try to drive the, uh, uh, the Indians onto reservations in Dakota Territory. Uh, so they set out in uh, May 1864 under General Sully. There was one brigade from Minnesota, which included the 8th Minnesota, and then uh, General Sully came up from Sioux City, Iowa, following the Missouri River, uh, and they met up in central, uh, what's now North Dakota, along the Missouri River, where they built uh, Fort Rice. Uh, from there, they were looking for Indians, and they eventually found a large concentration of them up near the Kildare Mountains uh, in uh, west, west central North Dakota. And uh, they, there were about 1,600 lodges there. They figured uh, there were probably 6,000 or more Indians in this village. And Sully wanted to drive them onto a reservation. But, uh, you know, after the previous year's expedition and the battles there, the uh, these Indians were not uh, looking forward to dealing with the U.S. government, and they were, they were determined to resist. We're going to so, take a, another short break. Uh, listeners will leave you hanging. Does this sound familiar? U.S. Army finds a village of Sioux much larger than expected. We'll just go charge right down on it. Uh, We know how that works out in 1876. Mm -hmm. When we come back, we'll find out how it worked uh, for the 8th Minnesota. We're talking tonight with Paul Hodnefield, author of Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
and welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Paul Hodnefield, author of Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. So we were left off talking about the Battle of Killdeer Mountain, the 8th Minnesota, part of a brigade that's advancing on a very large camp of well-armed uh, Sioux warriors, uh, much as, as Custer would, Reno, Benteen would do uh, 10 years plus later. Uh, but this one, this battle comes out differently. Yeah, and there, there's a couple of reasons for that. The, the, there were two big differences between Kildeer and, and uh, uh, Little Bighorn 12 years later. At Kildeer, uh, the, there were a lot, uh, an awful lot of Indians, but um, they were outgunned by the by the government, the uh, the, mm-hmm. the U.S. Uh, troops were armed with Springfield rifles, and they had uh, cannon along with them. The Indians were about half of them were armed with bows and arrows still, and the other half had trade muskets, uh, shotguns, and and uh, rifles that uh, really didn't couldn't match at all the the range of the Springfields. So uh, the other thing was the the tactics uh, that the Indians used at the time. <clears throat> uh, Personal displays of bravery were were very much valued in that culture, uh, especially in war. And as a result, they were uh, the Indians were not as coordinated. They're they're um, acting more individually. I think one soldier was quoted as saying that each one was his own general. And uh, as a result, they they were going against soldiers that were trained in unit tactics. And and uh, as a result. They they just simply were they were outgunned and they were uh, uh, you know the tactics uh, didn't suit well for that type of battle and as a result it turned into a, a rout fairly quickly and the the uh, the, the Indians began uh, a desperate fight to protect the village uh, long enough for their for their families to get away out the uh, uh, the ravines and gullies behind the village into the badlands where they would be safe. I, I should also note that sadly, this group of uh, uh, I think they were Hunk Papa Sioux were not at all involved in the Minnesota uprising. They had nothing to do with it. Um, but uh, amongst the uh, the leaders of that group, uh, mm-hmm. was Sitting Bull was there, uh, and other mm-hmm. leaders who would uh, play a role in the battle of Little Bighorn twelve years later. And of course, there were more fights b- between. Uh, Kildare Mountain and Little Bighorn, but I think they they took away from uh, some lessons from Kildare and and turned them against the Seventh uh, Cavalry twelve years later. Now, you mentioned the the Indians retreat into the Badlands, and you have a couple photographs of what that means in terms of terrain. Uh, General Sully pursues them and and decides to take uh, the shortcut across the Badlands. It's all he has food for. Uh, he doesn't have time for a long march. Uh, I've never been there in person, but what fascinating geography! It just, it just uh, uh, how do you describe that terrain? Uh, it is really hard to describe. Uh, I have been there. Uh, I, I, some of the pictures in the book uh, are ones mm-hmm. that I took. Um, it is beautifully colorful. Uh, it's uh, like an alien world in in many ways. A lot of uh, uh, round hills, pointed hills, and it's all erosion. So these are all below the the plateau level 
The Badlands are, are down, not up, all of these terrain features. So the, the soldiers, as they, wrote, as they got close to the Badlands, all of a sudden they, they started standing up in their saddle and looking down into this uh, terrain. Uh, it, uh, it was erosion from the Little Missouri River that, that created Badlands over tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, a lot of cliffs, a lot of uh, very steep hills, uh, a lot of shifting uh, 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 ground down there, and it, it was uh, it, it had to have been very daunting. And it there had not been a lot of white exploration of that area at that point. Nobody knew their way across it, and Sully didn't have much of a choice. He either had to turn back and abandon the expedition because mm-hmm. of the the quartermaster made an error and didn't have enough mm-hmm. rations. So they they were either going to have to turn back or they would have to cut across the Badlands to get to the Missouri River, or actually the Yellowstone River, where there were steamboats prepositioned with supplies. So Sully found a, one of the Indian scouts that thought he could find his way across it, and they began uh, building their own road as they went uh, to, to get across that. And they, were, they, had, they had to haul uh, wagons and, and cannon straight up and straight down, sometimes taking a whole company of men on the ropes to, to keep these things from uh, uh, sliding down the hill. It was quite an effort that they had to put in to get through the Badlands. And that, that seems like one of the more remarkable experiences. And, of course, the, uh, they're being sniped at by Indians uh, throughout this time as well, aren't they? Yeah, after they got into the Badlands, the first night that they were there, uh, uh, the Indians began... Uh, essentially a counterattack from from uh, the the Kildeer episode, and mm-hmm. uh, they began gathering and and trying to uh, uh, pick off the soldiers where they could and uh, prevent them from uh, uh, pursuit. And in the process, uh, it wound up turning into a three day running gun battle. Mm-hmm. So in in the in the hot under the hot sun where there's very little shade and the water was mm-hmm. bad, it uh, it must have been absolutely miserable. To participate in that, well, the, the the sense of relief when they finally get to the Yellowstone River and and there's water that's drinkable there, re- really comes through here. Uh, there are many many stories in this book, uh, listeners. We're, we're obviously don't have time to share all of them. You can read about the the time the bison charged into the camp, uh, for example. But they do get to the Yellowstone. They do eventually get back uh, from this expedition. And when they find out, uh, welcome back, job well done, now you're going to go fight the rebels uh, without a break, they, they respond quite characteristically, I thought. Yeah, they, they, uh, they actually were told they're going to stay at Fort Snelling for two weeks, but they had been expecting to have a furlough so they could go home for a few days. After all, they mm-hmm. just finished six months in some very grueling conditions. They'd done their job well, and uh, they wanted to go home. And the Army, for whatever reason, denied uh, furloughs. Um, this, was, this did not go over well with the men. They felt it was unjust and uh, that they were being treated badly. So like they did in other situations that arose, they took matters into their own hands. Um, the next morning, when uh, the colonel came out to take roll call, there were just a handful of men from the regiment still there. <laughs> they had absconded during the night. And I, I think they did it, by the way, with the uh, assistance of their officers, who, who played mm-hmm. dumb later on. But uh, 
they called it taking French leave, which we would today call being AWOL, but the entire regiment just picked up and went home for 10 days. Those who stayed behind had volunteered to stay behind to guard the equipment that, uh, mm-hmm. of, the, of the different companies. And uh, the officers, in turn, took those men and then said, you go back home and arrest those men that absconded and bring them back here. <laughs> so these guys went home and uh, got to have their own little vacation or their own furlough because, uh, uh, amazingly, not one man was arrested in that whole uh, incident. They certainly weren't going to bring them back. Uh, in any event, 10 days later, the entire regiment showed up again. Uh, as far as I could tell, not one man uh, deserted during that time. They, all, they, took their, they took their leave, but they all came back, and uh, they shipped out to... Uh, to fight in the South in Tennessee uh, on time. Uh, it created quite a kerfuffle with uh, General Pope and, and uh, General Sibley on the, at the uh, district and, and department level, but uh, the, uh, the officers uh, were absolved of any, any blame, and uh, General Sibley blamed it on, the, uh, on inattentive guards. But uh, <laughs> they, they couldn't have done this without the uh, cooperation of the officers. And, in fact, one of the soldiers right. said uh, uh, during the stampede getting out of there, he noticed the colonel outside his tent in the middle of the night looking at the stars, probably wondering what the weather was going to do, <laughs> but didn't seem to notice the thousand men running out the door. Wow. Now, they, they, so they all come back. They report back for duty. They get shipped down to Tennessee, down to Murfreesboro. And they end up in a battle there with uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest and his troops uh, uh, along the Wilkinson Pike. And uh, without, we lack time to go into detail about it, but I thought it was interesting that in this battle, the 8th Minnesota employs tactics that they seem to have absorbed on the frontier. They don't strictly fight in uh, uh, West Point style. Yeah, in fact, they, they were rather exuberant when they went on the attack, and they, they got out in front of uh, their their support, exposing their flanks, so they had to stop and mm-hmm. uh, reform. But in the process of their charge, they, they started uh, emulating the, uh, the Indian calls that they had heard the Sioux making during the, the battles out, out to the West. And this had... Uh, somewhat the same effect as the rebel yell uh, did on the Union forces. And uh, at a critical point in that battle, it caused the, uh, the, the simultaneous uh, Indian call that they put out seemed to cause the fire to, to slacken just long enough for them to hit, get into the woods. And once they hit the woods, they would bounce from tree to tree, as they had seen the Indians doing during the battles, uh, in, in, you know, where there were forests anyway, in, uh, mm-hmm. at Kildare Mountain and in the Badlands. And uh, that allowed them to, uh, uh, you know, get through the, get through the woods uh, with minimal casualties and, and overrun the uh, Confederate troops that they were facing. So was that their their biggest fight of the war it was it, it, they they lost about a third of their men in 20 minutes in that wow. now, not all of them were killed of course but uh, mm-hmm. the casualties with those big head heavy lead bullets mm-hmm. uh, you know they're life life altering types of uh, of wounds yeah. but they they had a minimal number of uh, killed but uh, an awful lot of wounded and uh, 
it, it, it was a very fierce and short battle, but uh, they they came out triumphant. They they put the uh, Confederates they were facing to flight, and in fact, uh, it, it frustrated Forrest so much that uh, in in one of his biographies, it said that he uh, actually shot one of the retreating standard bearers uh, who mm. would who would not stop when he ordered them to. Uh, wow. So they uh, they they definitely had uh, quite a fight there. From from there, they get sent uh, east again. They end up in in Washington D.C. on their way to North Carolina, where Sherman is is fighting with Joe Johnston. Uh, is this where they pick up the the nickname, the Sherman's Wood Ticks? Yes, and uh, the way the way they got the the nickname is uh, the provost marsh the provost. Uh, uh, Marshall in uh, D.C. at the time was a, a regiment of Massachusetts soldiers who had never served in combat. And they were dressed in crisp, clean uniforms. Uh, uh, they had uh, white starched paper collars. They looked immaculate. And these 8th Minnesota soldiers who had been across the Dakota Territory in the heat and fought in the cold uh, Missouri or uh, Tennessee mud and and traveled by just about every means possible to get to D.C. They, they look pretty motley. And the, uh, the, the uh, Massachusetts sol- soldiers referred to them as Sherman's wood ticks because they were on their way to, to join Sherman, and it was intended as a derisive term. But I think the, the 8th Minnesota soldiers are rather proud of what mm-hmm. they had done at that point, and uh, they looked at their tattered state more as uh, uh, showing that they had earned um, their their uh, I guess uh, uh, that they very much earned their uh, reputation as being good soldiers, and uh, they didn't take much to this what they called the paper collar regiment, but they they adopted no. that term Sherman's Wood Ticks as their own. So now they ended the title up of the it- book. Indeed. They end up in North Carolina. Uh, they are near the Battle of Wise Fork, where we're fighting a battle today for battlefield preservation. The state wants mm-hmm. to build a highway over it. Um, they were not uh, not actually in the battle, but near it. Um, and so they're, they're in at the end when Sherman uh, finally finishes uh, matters with Johnston there. That story and many others are told in much more detail in the book, which unfortunately we don't have any more time to talk about tonight. But listeners, uh, if you want to learn about this regiment, the book is called Sherman's Wood Ticks, The Adventures, Ordeals, and Travels of the 8th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry During the Civil War. It's written by our guest tonight, Paul Hodnefield. Paul, thanks for joining me on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. I appreciate the opportunity to appear. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.